Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 22, 1 Kings chapter 12. There are events in the Bible that are so history-changing that it's hard to put into words. And yet, most of the time, these events are given but brief mention or, or, or spoken of rather dispassionately. This is one of the many aspects of the underlying nature of uh, Holy Scripture. It's so at odds with the typical literature of the ancient Middle East. Usually, if an author was chronicling the dissolution of a kingdom or the, the fall or rise of a king or victorious war battles, we would see abundant use of hyperbole and exaggeration, flattery of the royalty, gory details, stories of superhuman heroic acts, and no mention whatsoever of the actor's faults or the leadership's failures. But this just isn't so of the Bible. Especially here beginning in 1 Kings chapter 12, we are given a rather emotionless report of the secession of the ten northern tribes from the nation of Israel. The death of Solomon and the rise of two new Hebrew kings, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, who were, well, they were, let's just say they were a vast departure from David and Shlomo. So I'd like to interject a couple of thoughts to begin today's lesson. First is that we're going to see that all the scriptural focus is on the leadership of Israel. We don't see any but the slightest mention of the general population of Israel. And this is because, as we've discussed in past lessons, the fate of a nation always rests on its leadership. Indeed, our carnal humanness, the way that all mankind operates on a societal level, inevitably means we will have leaders. And the direction of our community, small or large, will to one measure or another be placed in the hands of these leaders. Now it's self-evident that what they choose and how they behave will play the pivotal role in the development and the fate of any particular society, whether it's a small tribe or a modern superpower nation. But there is also another reality invisibly at play, the spiritual reality. And it is by means of this unseen spiritual reality that God will judge mankind on two levels. As individuals, according to our relationship with Messiah, and corporately, according to our community and national membership. Our eternal salvation, thus our eternal future, is on a purely one-by-one -one basis. But much of our earthly experience is going to revolve 
around God's perspective of the leadership of our common government. Thus the kings of Israel, whether upright or wicked, will be the determining factor used by God as to whether he will bless and protect Israel or he'll turn his back on them, even draw down enemies upon them as punishment. We are told in 1 Kings that the Lord has determined to split Israel into two uneven proportions and to strip Solomon and his descendants of the larger one. And this due to Solomon's lack of faithfulness to Jehovah. It was all on the king. This principle hasn't changed. And it has little to do with the system of government under which a nation operates. Whether it's an eastern monarchy or a western democracy, the character of the leadership and whether that leader heeds the words and commandments of Jehovah God of Israel, that will determine the destiny of that nation. And what else is a nation? but a group of individuals with a common bond and culture who share a single leadership. There is no escape from this reality, whether we think it's fair or not. The second thing I'd like to point out is that the loss of King Solomon, the coronation of King Rehoboam, the arrival of Jeroboam, the split of Israel into two separate kingdoms was a highly charged emotional event that would have sent the majority of Israel's population, north and south, into a long-term state of depression and fear. No doubt the leaders who wanted this split were self-satisfied because they had achieved personal power and control. But at the grassroots level, the very nature of Israel was now changed. Okay. Just as with the American Civil War, there were those on both sides who wanted and longed for two separate nations with separate leadership, separate cultures, separate goals. And there were also those who felt that the breakup of this union was the tragic demise of the greatest social experiment ever conceived. Thus at the end of the war, when the union was preserved and there were those who felt defeated, humiliated, because they were now forced against their will to remain as part of a national community that they didn't want. There were those who were jubilant because the split was avoided. No doubt most of the population had emotions that vacillated and most had no sense now of stability. They, they, they lacked confidence in a good future. So whatever life had been for each uh, before the Civil War, for each citizen, it was different afterwards. An enormous amount of the young male population of America had been killed. Another segment of the population had been set apart as African slaves, but now they had to find work, be a, try to be assimilated into a majority European white society. 
Somehow, the years of hatred between North and South had to be healed. Commerce and trade changed. Although the outcome for the nation of Israel was the opposite of what happened in America, the result for the people was the same. Social upheaval. Uncertainty. Family splits based on loyalties and politics were forced upon all. None of this is directly addressed in the Bible, yet this is the foundational context for what we'll see for the next several centuries of Hebrew history. And it's all the result of bad and generally ungodly leadership. We must never forget that although God's providence is the supreme driving force behind all that happens in our universe, it's only apparent to us in the physical sphere that we experience on a daily basis. Upheavals due to changes in governments, wars, economic conditions, family relationships, and and more. All of these are under God's sovereign control. But it is these things, unfortunately, that also tend to control our emotions and our sense of well-being, no matter how much we trust in God. And this is how we have to view these coming chapters in the book of Kings. Okay? So let's read 1 Kings chapter 12 together. Open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12, 384 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Rechavlam went to Shechem, from where all Israel had come to proclaim him king. When Yarovam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he'd fled from Shlomo. So Yerovam was living in Egypt, but they sent and summoned him. Yerovam and the whole community of Israel came and said to Rechavam, Your father laid a harsh yoke on us, but if you will lighten the harsh service we had to render your father and ease his heavy yoke that he put on us, we will serve you. He said to them, Leave me alone for three days and then come back to me. So the people left. Well, King Rechavam consulted the older men who had been in attendance on Shlomo, his father, during his lifetime and asked, What advice would you give me as to how to answer these people? And they said to him, If you will start today being a servant to these people, if you will serve them, be responsive to them, give them favorable consideration, then they will be your servants forever. But he didn't take the advice the older men gave him. Instead, he consulted the young men he'd grown up with, who were now his attendants. And he asked them, what advice would you give me so that we can give an answer to these people who said to me, lighten the yoke that your father laid on us? And the young men he'd grown up with said to him, These people who said to you, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter for us. Here's the answer you should give them. My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. Yes, my father burdened you with a heavy yoke. I'll make it heavier. My father controlled you with whips. I'll control you with scorpions. 
So Yerovam and all the people came to Rechovam the third day, as the people had requested by saying, Coming to me, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. Abandoning the advice the older men had given him, he addressed them according to the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy, but I'll add to your yoke. My father controlled you with whips, I'll control you with scorpions. So the king didn't listen to the people. And that was something Adonai brought about so that he could fulfill his word, which Adonai had spoken through Achiah from Shiloh to Yerovam, the son of Nevat. And when all Israel saw that the king wasn't listening to them, the people answered the king, Do we have any share in David? We have no heritage in the son of Yeshai. Go to your tents, Israel. Care for your own house, David. So Israel left for their tents. But as for the people of Israel living in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam ruled over them. King Rehoboam then sent Adoram, who was in charge of forced labor. But all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam managed to mount his chariot and flee to Jerusalem. Israel has been in rebellion against the dynasty of David to this day. On hearing that Jeroboam had returned, all Israel summoned him to the assembly and proclaimed him king over all Israel. No one followed the dynasty of David except for the tribe of Judah. And when Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 select soldiers, to fight the house of Israel and bring the rulership back to Rehoboam, son of Solomon. But this word came from God. Uh, his word from God came to Shamiah, the man of God. Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin. Go to the rest of the people and tell them, this is what Adonai says, you are not to go up and fight your brothers, the people of Israel. Every man is to go back home because this is my doing. They paid attention to the word of Adonai and turned back, as Adonai had told them to do. Then Yerovam built up Shechem in the hills of Ephraim and he lived there. After that he built up Penuel. Nevertheless, Yerovam said to himself, Now the rulership will return to the house of David. For if these people continue going up to offer sacrifices in the house of Adonai in Jerusalem, their hearts will turn back to their Lord. Rehoboam king of Judah, they'll kill me. Return to Rehoboam king of Judah. After seeking advice, the king made two calves of gold and said to the people, You have been going up to Jerusalem long enough. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He placed one in Bethel and the other in Dan, and the affair became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one in Bethel and all the way to Dan to worship the other. He also set up temples on the high places. He made Kohanim priests from among all the people, even though they weren't descended from Levi. Jeroboam instituted a festival in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, similar to the festival held in Judah. He went up to the altar in Bethel to sacrifice to the calves he had made. He placed in Bethel the priests he had appointed 
for the high places. He went up to the altar which he had set up in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month in the month which he had chosen on his own and instituted a festival for the people of Israel. He went up to the altar to burn incense. We talked a little about Reko, uh, Recho Vuam uh, last week, and it seems as though there wasn't any recorded controversy or opposition to him, assuming the, the throne from his father Solomon. What we should question, however, is just why this coronation ceremony up north in the city of Shechem was necessary, especially since Shechem was the traditional assembly for the northern tribes, but not for Israel as a nation. See, it was the law that when a son succeeded his father as king, that no kind of ceremonial acceptance of his leadership was required. He also did not have to be anointed by the priesthood or a prophet. However, when there is a rival to the throne, like when Solomon had to wrangle with Adonijah, over who would succeed David, then indeed a ceremonial anointment was needed to publicly settle the matter. Truthfully, the scriptures don't address the issue. Rather, we're just told about it. Like the, likely, this young and inexperienced Rehoboam thought it would be both gracious and politically expedient to give in to the demands of these northern tribes to be coronated away from Jerusalem where if there had been any kind of coronation it certainly should have been at the temple and as we see in these passages the tensions between the north and the south were at a boiling point and so it probably seemed wise to Rehoboam to travel up north to receive affirmation of his ascendancy even if it meant doing it on the terms of those northern tribes by going up to Shechem. His father Solomon, his grandfather David would have instinctively known that to do so would have been an admission of weakness. And in this kind of a society that only succeeded in emboldening Rehoboam's enemies. And predictably, by agreeing to this somewhat demeaning demand for the new king to venture north to be confirmed, this presented an opportunity for Jeroboam to return from self-exile in Egypt. Now remember he had fled some time earlier because he openly sought to depose King Solomon and so Shlomo tried to have him killed. And with Jeroboam leading the way, when Rehoboam arrived at Shechem, the new king was confronted by the demand to reduce the taxation that he placed upon the northern tribes. And this taxation consisted basically of two things, money and labor. It's ironic that before he fled, Jeroboam was happily appointed by King Solomon as the supervisor of forced labor that was to be supplied by the two most powerful northern tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And now here he is, representing the northern tribes, demanding the new king of Israel lighten the load. 
No doubt the hope was to create a crisis over what had been a populist issue among the common people of the ten northern tribes, forced labor. And as any experienced politician knows, you never let a good crisis go to waste. So now Rehoboam had a problem. If he gave in to the demand, he would lose honor and be shamed. He would also lose the use of valuable forced labor for his government. Now on the one hand, the North was not being unreasonable. King Solomon never should have employed forced Hebrew labor in the first place. Secondly, it was implemented in a patently unfair way. Only the northern tribes were required to supply it. Shlomo's own tribe of Judah was exempt. One can only imagine the level of contempt and outrage this caused. But on the other hand, Solomon's programs had made Israel the envy of the known world. The ten northern tribes had benefited greatly and had experienced a nearly undisturbed peace during the 40 years that he ruled. So the real issue is one that has vexed mankind at all times. Who would be in control? For the past 80 years, Israel had been ruled by a Judahite. David, and then Solomon, and now Rehoboam. The north wanted their turn in power. Verse 4 concludes with the representatives of the northern tribes saying that if Rehoboam will negotiate a substantially reduced amount of forced labor that's currently required of them, then they'll agree to serve him, meaning they'll accept him as king. The king asked for three days to think it over. What he didn't understand was that it was already checkmate. The moment he agreed to go to Shechem, he made a tactical mistake from which there was no turning back. His very first act as king was to appear weak and he didn't have enough cunning or support to reassert his power upon the northern tribes. First he goes to the royal court of advisors that his father had used for so many years. And in verse 6 he asked them how they would respond to Jeroboam's demands. And they tell Rehoboam that if he will be a servant king, which is the kind of king that Gog said is required of all Israelite kings, and if he responds to the northern tribal leaders with tov dabar, good words, then they'll be his servants. They'll be loyal to the throne of Rehoboam all of their days. In other words, their counsel for Rehoboam was to give in to their demands and to do it graciously. This was wise advice if one considers Rehoboam's tenuous position. The council of elders knew the box that Rehoboam had created for himself. No doubt he had not gone up, had he not gone up north to Shechem, instead had told the northern tribes that he needed no coronation, had they demanded this same thing, the advice would have been very different. But he was operating from a position of weakness. 
So his only hope to remain king and to avoid civil war was to give in to what the northern tribes were asking for. But the young and impetuous Rehoboam didn't like the answer answer of this council. So in verse 8, he went to some of his friends who he'd grown up with. So by definition, they weren't mature. They had little, if any, experience in diplomacy and asked them what he ought to do. Naturally, they told him what he wanted to hear because they were of similar temperament. They recommended the exact opposite of what the wise elders had advised. They advised a show of power to try and recover from his mistake of traveling to Shechem for the coronation ceremony. Verse 10 is a difficult translation, but essentially the meaning is, my weakest point is stronger than all of my father's vigor. The rash advisors told Rehoboam to fully acknowledge the heaviness of his father's yoke, but also that since the tribal leaders insult him with their demands, that he shall make that yoke even more burdensome in retribution. Rehoboam went back to Jeroboam and his cohorts with this answer on the third day as promised. The exact words that his young advisors suggested were what he spoke. These were the words of a tyrant, not of a servant king. Verse 15 says the king did not shema to the people. He did not hear and act appropriately. But we're reminded immediately that this all, all of it, was God's providence. This was the way that the kingdom would be split and the larger portion taken from Solomon's son. No doubt, no one detected that the Lord was at the bottom of all this. Everything was happening in the context of men dealing with men on political matters. They all operated within their natural character and all responded as one would expect. And yet it all served to bring about what the Lord had determined He would do in response to Solomon's idolatry. This was a stupid, irresponsible response by the king. And so in verses 16 and 17, the ten tribes declare their independence using the colorful language of that era. You know, it's interesting that their angry reply of we have no share in David, no inheritance, and Jesse back to your tents are basically the same words used by the rebel Sheba of Benjamin against King David. Listen to 2 Samuel 20, verse 1. There happened to be there a scoundrel whose name was Sheba, the son of Bihri, a a Benjamite. He sounded the shofar and said, We have no share in David, no inheritance in the son of Yeshai, so Israel every man to his tent. It's about 920 B.C. And Rechavuam has just lost his kingdom. In verse 16, when it says that all of Israel saw that the king just didn't listen to them. We need to apply our lesson from last week whereby we have to begin to apply the word Israel very carefully and in the proper context. 
And it is in the same context as the first verse of chapter 12 where it says, For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him, Rehoboam, king. In other words, here the term Israel is speaking only of the ten northern tribes. It is speaking in retrospect because these words recorded as scripture long after the actual event. And thus, once the whole of Israel was split, there was now the ten-tribe kingdom of Israel and the one-tribe kingdom of Judah. And verse 17 acknowledges that just as God's divine decree through Ahiah ordained, Rehoboam now ruled only over the house of Judah. Of course, the rebellious Rehoboam just didn't get it that the matter was now a closed case in heaven. And so he decided he'd try to make amends on earth. Before he left for Jerusalem, he dispatched Adoram, who was in charge of all forced labor throughout the kingdom. They had him, had him go to the leaders of the north to try to patch things up and get the people to accept Rehoboam as king. The minute he was spotted, Adoram was killed. So Rehoboam mounted his chariot and fled to the safety of the south. Now when the tribal leaders and the clan leaders heard that Jeroboam had returned and what had transpired between Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the people crowned him as king of the northern tribes and called the nation Israel. In a few decades, the super tribe of Ephraim became sufficiently dominant in the north that the nation became known simply as Ephraim. So, so that we can be a little clearer as we proceed, often from here forward, I'm going to call this ten tribe nation Ephraim Israel. Okay, to separate it from the former 12 tribe unified nation of Israel and to separate it, of course, from the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, after a failed diplomatic mission to try and recover his lost kingdom, now Rehoboam would try brute force. He called upon the tribal army of his home tribe, Judah, as well as his ally, Benjamin, and he assembled 180,000 warriors. This was to be all-out war to regain his kingdom. Apparently, his southern tribal coalition agreed with the goal of keeping this kingdom intact because he was quickly able to raise this huge army and there's no record of disagreement. But suddenly, a prophet named Shemiah, meaning hear and obey God, appears and he tells the king that he's not to attack Israel that all the warriors of Judah and Benjamin are to go home because the loss of the northern kingdom was brought about by Jehovah. Interestingly, Rehoboam and the army obeyed. See, perhaps we have to give Rehoboam a bit of a break here. It seems that he really didn't know that he was destined to lose his kingdom due to the idolatry of his father. Solomon. Jeroboam knew about this, but Rehoboam didn't. Every Israelite king had at least one prophet that was assigned to him by God. It seems that Shemiah must have been Rehoboam's prophet. 
So when Shemaiah told the king the oracle from God that he wasn't to go and attack Jeroboam and the northern tribes, Rechavuam believed him. So I think we have to give some merit to Rechavuam, even though his boorish behavior and tyrannical attitude had a lot to do with the circumstances he now faced. You know, Rabbi Sherman, a noted Hebrew scholar, makes the observation that Jeroboam was probably a God-fearing man at first. Otherwise, the Lord wouldn't have given him the opportunity to rule the northern tribes with the promise that if he obeyed the Lord's commandments, he'd have an enduring dynasty. But the power of knowing he would be king and then when he became king was just too much for him. And he quickly fell from grace. Soon descended into the worst sorts of idolatry. He would institute policies that would doom his reign and his people. And they revolved around setting up an alternative religious system. Verse 25 starts a narrative that explains that Jeroboam built up Shechem and Penuel, meaning he fortified the cities, in case Rehoboam did what Jeroboam probably would have done in a similar situation, attack and try to regain the territory. Interestingly, in 2 Chronicles 11, we find that Rehoboam was afraid that Jeroboam would attack Judah in order to rule over all 12 tribes. In 2 Chronicles 11, 4-10, we read this. This is what Adonai says. You're not to go up and fight your brothers. Every man's to go back home because this is my doing. They paid attention to the words of Adonai and returned back from attacking Jeroboam. Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem and built cities for defense in Judah. He built Bethlehem, Etam, Tekoa, Bezur, Soko, Adulam, Gat, Marashah, Zif, Adoraim, Lachish, Azekah, Zorah, Alyon, and Hebron. These are fortified cities in Judah and Benjamin. See, Jeroboam, however, must have been observing how his people still journeyed to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship and sacrifice and observe the feasts and all the appointed times because he began to get paranoid that with this continued temple and priesthood connection his people might decide to kill him and ask Rehoboam to be their king and thus reunite the kingdom under the Davidic dynasty. And the truth is that no doubt the common people of the northern tribes weren't as interested in separation and hostility between Judah and Ephraim Israel as was Jeroboam and all the tribal leaders. After all, their main beef with Solomon and then Rehoboam was their continuing insistence on using the people for forced labor for government projects. His solution? Create a whole new religious system complete with his own gods, idols, high places, and priests. He had two golden calves manufactured and told the people that going to Jerusalem to worship them, well, this is just too much of an inconvenience for you. So here are your gods, O Israel. 
Jeroboam used the same declaration to present his golden calves to the people as Aaron did out in the wilderness during the Exodus. In fact, he gave these calf gods the credit for bringing Israel out of Egypt. In my humble opinion, Jeroboam had gone spiritually insane in his desire for power and control. That warped mind put one of the golden calves at the northernmost part of Israel in Dan, another in the southernmost part of Israel at Bethel. That way his people wouldn't have terribly far to go to sacrifice and worship no matter where they lived in Jeroboam's kingdom. Frankly, it stretches the imagination to wonder how someone like Jeroboam and a people like the northern tribes of Israel could find it acceptable to simply exchange gods. Out with the old, in with the new. All of this for the sake of convenience, for political correctness. After but one generation, one generation, from the construction and consecration of Solomon's temple, the people of northern Israel went whoring, not just after other gods, but after a new religious system that they invented. In verse 31 we're told that Yeruvuam made a temple that consisted of multiple bamot, high places. He created a new priesthood out of non-Levites. But then he went so far as to forsake much of the Torah, threw away the biblical feasts, other appointed times. He created his own. Why? In order to separate he and his people as far as he is possible from the roots of their faith so that a new order with a new agenda could be created and observed. He created a new holiday in the eighth month of the year that began on the 15th day. In other words, it mimicked Sukkot that occurs on the 15th day of the seventh month. As the passage says in 1 Kings 12.33, he went up to the altar which he had set up in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month which he had chosen on his own. And he instituted a festival for the people of Israel. He went up to the altar to burn incense. Now it's my hope that you are as struck by this as I am. If ever there was a pattern after which early Gentile Christianity fell prey, it was this one. The early church bishops, all Gentiles, took over the church movement that was begun, of course, by Jews. Now how would these new Gentile bishops be able to wrest control away from the Jewish messianic leadership and maintain it? As with Jeroboam, by separating themselves and their congregations as much as possible from their former Jewish faith roots. And that included setting aside most aspects of the Torah and the commandments. So in relatively little time, the God-ordained biblical feasts and all the appointed times were abolished. 
new man-made holidays like Christmas, Lent, Good Friday, Easter. These were invented to replace and somewhat mimic the older ones. Naturally, the new ones were decreed to be held at different times, at different places than the ones the Torah commanded. We got a new God. We were told that the Old Testament God wasn't the same anymore. He had transformed into the New Testament God, the God that never changes changed. These God's rules and commandments were different. The Old Testament God was rigid, legalistic, bloodthirsty. The New Testament God's tolerant. He's a pacifist, full of love and mercy and grace. The Bible ordained symbols of our faith roots, the menorah, the Ark of the Covenant, the Sabbath. These were done away with. New symbols arose. The cross, the fish, Sunday rest, the Christmas tree. The Roman Catholic Church instituted, it, instituted an alternative priest system with its own requirements, its own rules. The houses of worship went from being these modest buildings to extravagant monuments to religion. Naturally, some vestiges of the old faith roots were retained. Tithing, naturally tithing. <laughs> Communal worship, even the main elements of the Ten Commandments. And we can be certain that Jeroboam did the same because retaining some of those older customs and traditions brought advantages. It brought a certain comfort level for the people with them. It's something that we as not modern believers need to think long and sincerely about. We need to pray about it. We need to repent from it. That Yeshua is Messiah does not abolish His heritage. And it doesn't abolish ours. It gives us no right to determine to change God's laws and commandments merely because they're inconvenient for us. And despite the terrible lie that has been taught for almost 1900 years that Christ did away with the Torah and the law and the teachings of the prophet just once again reflect on his words in the gospel of Matthew 5:17 through 19 do not think that i've come to abolish the torah or the prophets i have not come to abolish but to complete Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a youth or a stroke will pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So whoever displays, or rather disobeys, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven.